Well, today we are wrapping up this four-week series during which we have discussed our purpose as a faith community, a purpose which we put like this. As we follow Jesus, we are seeking to participate in God's restorative work in our world, and we do that in four distinct ways. Number one, engaging in our surrounding culture by caring about each other's journey, by discovering wholeness. We spent a week talking about each of those three works of restoration, which means today we turn our attention to the fourth work of restoration in that list, the restoration that comes through encounters with God. Before we dive into that topic, though, I want to begin by reading a psalm. We occasionally sing a song that springs directly from this psalm, Psalm 42, so the words will probably sound quite familiar to you, but I want to go ahead and read through it, beginning in verse 1. The psalmist writes, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. We'll come back and read, continue reading in just a moment, but I think as we reflect on this psalm, one thing we are reminded of as as we journey through the life of faith, there should be an ever-increasing desire to draw close to the heart of God. If we believe that our creator and sustainer is also a personal God, which I believe to be true, then we should desire to know God and to grow in our experiences of his love. We long, we We desire, we yearn for that connection, but sometimes I think many would admit, maybe because of life's overwhelming circumstances or persistent, unrepentant sin, or or maybe we just find ourselves in a rather apathetic season of life, sometimes it's hard to even desire to draw close to God, to even have that longing because we simply don't feel it. But if our discipleship in the faith is tied completely to how we feel in a given moment, we're never going to grow in our desire to know God and to encounter the living Christ. So I think one of the questions that I would encourage us to consider as we continue reading through this psalm is how do we as the people of God continue to move toward our ultimate goal, which is wholeness? And true life in Christ, how do we continue to move forward in those seasons where we simply don't feel it? This is one of the reasons I love this psalm. We we continue reading in verse 5. It continues, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Miser. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. 
By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. It sounds like the psalmist has been having some bad days. Night and day, he says, my, my food, well, that's my tears. People ask me, where is your God? I ask myself that question. I don't feel you. I'm, I'm struggling. I don't want to pray. I, I don't want to meditate or study or worship or even sit in silence. Psalmist admits, yes, I used to go to the house of God with shouts of joy and praise, but not now. Now I'm downcast. And in that moment, in the middle of that confession of feeling downcast, the psalmist declares, therefore, I will remember. Therefore, because of those realities, all of those negative realities, in those moments I will remember, not because I'm feeling it, not because I feel this assurance of your presence with me now, but because I don't. In those moments, that's when I am going to remember. In those moments, that's when I will enter your story again and remember who you are and what you are doing in and through me now and in the future. I enter the routine of recounting your story despite everything in me that is making me disbelieve in this moment. Yet, I will praise you. I enter that routine because I want to know you. And I want to grow in that desire even when I'm not feeling it. So I think there are some important connections to what a psalm like this communicates in our conversation for today, this idea of encountering the sacred. It's connected to what we do, especially here on Sunday mornings during our worship services. In some ways, this conversation is a conversation about worship. And yes, there are moments of worship throughout all of life. Worship is not just this 20-minute exercise during which we sing together on a Sunday morning. In fact, this entire gathering is worship for us. It's not just when we are singing, but we worship when we respond to God's invitation to reflect on his holiness and goodness. We worship when we pray and confess our sin as we have this morning. We worship when we fellowship together as we will around a meal this afternoon and when we respond to Christ's invitation to meet him at this table. We even worship when we are sent from this place into the world to shine the light that Christ shines in us. Everything that we do as the church is built upon worship and a desire to meet the living God. And so the forms of worship that we engage in when we gather in this room, the practices we participate in, are actually central in our understanding of this idea of encountering God. We believe that in worship, at least I believe this to be true, that we encounter the God of the universe, and the routine that we enter 
these practices we participate in, the, the experiences are shaping us as a particular people. And so the practices themselves are important. They're important. They're not magic. It's not the silver bullet to make sure that we are going to receive the favor of God. The, the, the practices are not where our hope is found. In fact, the practices are rather meaningless without the gospel and without the, the power of God working in and through them. But the practices are an essential way that we put ourselves in a position routinely Week after week, a position to worship and be transformed even when we don't feel like it. The practices are a way, as the psalmist says, yet I will remember. These practices are a way that we force ourselves to remember. So that we can be transformed even when we can't drum up those feelings. Even when we lack the charisma to create that sense of excitement. The faith that we are a part of is very much a practice-based faith. And those practices are shaping us and helping us remember who we are. So, if that's the case, the traditions that we engage in are important. They're not just something that we throw away because we've progressed beyond that. The, the 20th century Christian historian Jaroslav Pelikan captured some of this nuance when, when he said this. He said, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. He went on, and I suppose I should add, it is traditionalism that gives tradition such a bad name. So tradition is not the enemy. Tradition, routine, sacred practices that we participate in can be an essential part of our spiritual development. So the conversation we are having today, that a part of our purpose is joining God's work of restoration by encountering the sacred, by encountering God in Jesus Christ. But then as we think about that purpose in light of the psalm that we have read, how do we even know that we are encountering God when we don't feel it? When there's nothing objective to convince us that we have met with God, when we don't sense that, when we don't have that emotional experience or a feeling of ecstasy. In my tradition, growing up, it was through that emotional or spiritual high, that subjective feeling that informed you whether or not you had encountered God. And, you know, sometimes I felt growing up that I could attain that, but many other times that feeling simply eluded me. And I've discovered that that's, in my opinion, a very poor way to judge encounters with God. On one hand, it leaves you feeling, well, if you don't experience that emotional feeling, then either God is not interested in meeting with you, or I have failed somehow. I am not doing, going through the right process to make that encounter happen. It also reduces a worship gathering to stirring up that sense of excitement. And so church just becomes, well, we need to finally tune our ability to create that excitement. And I am becoming more and more convinced that that's not what encountering God is about. 
I want to suggest today that one of the things that we do as we gather here on Sundays, as we gather for worship, is not to drum up feelings, but to simply put ourselves in a position to encounter Jesus Christ, even if we don't realize that that's happening. And that's what these practices can do for us. We participate in them, and in the moment, we, we don't sense anything. And then maybe years later, we can look back and see how these practices, this practice-based faith, has been shaping us all along. Again, this happens in a lot of ways. We meet Jesus not just in this room. We meet Jesus as we develop honest, vulnerable, genuine relationships with others. We, we meet Jesus as we lift our voices singing songs of praise and adoration or as we express renewed commitment in prayer. Or, or maybe we could even think of, of the way our minds are taken to Christ as we would do something like light a candle during a worship service, which you may have noticed our, our candles have been removed, so that's not something you could do today, but they were taken down for paint. But some of you will participate in that on, on a Sunday as we are worshiping or as we are in a time of prayer. You'll you'll go to one of those stations and light a candle, not because the candle is doing anything special, not because it's lifting your prayer to God, but be, because doing that physical act and seeing that candle, that flame be ignited, it is a reminder of what is occurring as we approach God in prayer, a reminder that Christ is entering the darkness of our situation that we offer to him in prayer, bringing his light into that situation. And so doing a practice like that can have a tremendous effect on our sense of encountering God. So I think any and all of those examples that we've just run through can be important forms of worship and can aid in our experience with God. But ultimately, our worship gathering, as we come together in this room to encounter the living God, our worship gathering is centered around two things. It's primarily centered around word and sacrament. Word and sacrament. So we read, we pray, we sing, and hear the preached word. And we do it a lot. This morning, you may not have even realized it, but you have heard a lot of scriptures being read. You have been singing songs where you are singing scripture. All throughout our service, we are hearing and being exposed to our scriptures. And in so doing, we are drawn to and led to an encounter not just with the Bible. That's not first and foremost what we are after. But we have been drawn to and led to an encounter with the incarnate word who is Jesus Christ. So in a very real way, exposure to our scriptures, it provides nourishment for us. It prepares our hearts for a sacred encounter with Jesus. You may remember that story of Christ's temptation just before the beginning of his public ministry in Matthew chapter 4. Verse 3, we read this, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There is a nourishment that we need that goes beyond the food we eat. 
Paul gives voice to this in 1 Corinthians, where he equates the teachings of God with milk or solid food. Getting at the idea that when we develop a desire to be in our scriptures, we find nourishment for our souls. But again, that nourishment that our scriptures provide is found especially in the fact that they are bearing witness to the incarnate word who is Jesus Christ. So it is word, our scriptures, and sacrament. I believe we encounter Christ in and through both. Through the sacraments, I believe we encounter Jesus, both in baptism, as we are plunged into the waters of baptism, and in the ongoing celebration of the Eucharist communion, what we are going to celebrate in just a few moments as we gather around the table of our Lord. And I think this table, I think this, am I losing this? Is it cutting in and out? I'm afraid the batteries are going dead, so I'm going to have to go in to double the speed, okay? So try to stay with me as I really speak, and I'm wasting time as we speak, so... I think this meal that we are about to participate in is more than a simple memorial. We're doing more than just remembering the death of Christ. We certainly are doing that. But I think one of the great ironies of Pentecostals, so, so I'm talking about my tribe here. That's the tradition I come from, a tradition that has, by and large, at least in my lifetime, viewed communion strictly as a memorial or a ritual of remembrance. One of the great ironies of that is that Pentecostals have always had a strong insistence that the Spirit is present and active and moving everywhere until we come up here to this table. And then it's just what we are doing. We are just remembering. And I want to push back against that a little bit. We certainly are remembering, looking back to the death of Christ as we come to this table, but I think we are doing something more than that. Not less than that. We are doing that. But I think the significance goes deeper. Let's consider John 6 for a moment. And I understand this passage is not explicitly about the Eucharist. I mean, the Lord's Supper hadn't even been instituted by this point. But it surely seems to be, at the very least, foreshadowing the meal that our Lord will institute. As, as one theologian put it, if John 6 is not about the Eucharist, the Eucharist is surely about John 6. So this is a section, if you remember, where Jesus is reminding his followers that their ancestors miraculously received manna during their wilderness wanderings as they were without food. God was providing food for them, and yet they still died. So the food met a need in that moment, but it didn't lead to anything beyond that physical nourishment. And Jesus goes on to say, the bread that the Father will provide, if you partake in that, you will not die. Those who are hearing say, well, Give us that bread from the Father. And Jesus goes on to say, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not be hungry. Whoever believes in me will not be thirsty. And so, of course, on one hand, this is a metaphor for believing in and coming to faith in the one who takes away the sin of the world 
But I think at least the subtext of what's going on in John 6 or, or the reverberations of the Lord's Supper in this image that Jesus uses are pretty unmistakable. Verse 51, Jesus says this, If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then it goes on in verse 53. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. This understandably horrifies the disciples. It is a difficult saying for them to accept. And it's difficult, I think, for us to hear and accept. What in the world is going on here? On one hand, it just sounds pretty gross. On another hand, even if we can accept that in faith, it sounds, I mean, there's no tangible result for partaking in this meal. There's no quantifiable thing that we receive when we participate in this. So how is it of any benefit to me when I don't have those feelings of excitement in a meal like this? But if we can accept it in faith, if we can accept that as we partake in this meal, understanding in faith that Christ himself is the bread of life, I think we will find nourishment for our souls. We have a meal through which we regularly enact this. Yes, we look back on the death of Christ, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, when, when he quotes the words of Jesus just before the crucifixion, as he shares this meal with his disciples and institutes the supper, he takes the bread and the cup and says, if you take this bread and this cup, you do it in remembrance of me. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So yes, we look back. On the past, we look back to the death of Christ. We remember it. We also, though, look forward to a time when our souls will be finally and completely nourished in Christ alone. And so in faith, as we receive this meal, we are receiving a foretaste of that eternal nourishment. We are taking our minds to what will one day be our reality, and we find In this, a mystical encounter with the risen Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, just a chapter before the section we just read, Paul insists this in verse 16. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation? Participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? So in the bread and in the cup, there is participation in the body and blood of Christ. Participation, that language, I think, at the very least conveys some sense of actual communion with Christ that is taking place in this meal. This is, you'll you'll hear some of this language we use around here from time to time, the notion of the real presence of Christ 
in this meal, the real presence of Christ. We're not talking about the literal, physical body and blood of Jesus in these elements, but the real presence that somehow, mysteriously, in this meal, Christ is present in a unique way and is meeting with us and nourishing us. The reformer John Calvin went so far as to say if, if the real presence of Christ is not in this meal, then there's really no point in even doing it. And so we routinely receive this meal, not always seeing what's being done, not always, maybe many times, not sensing or feeling that anything is being accomplished, but we trust that as we respond to Christ in obedience, that we would meet him here at this table, and as we proclaim his death, and as we in faith feast on the bread of life, we trust that he is upholding us and sustaining us for the road ahead. We eat and we drink. We partake together to remember and to meet with our Lord today in fresh ways. And so I think in order to keep the ultimate thing ultimate for us as people of faith, that is finding newness, finding wholeness in Christ alone, to move towards that goal, I think we need continual encounters with Christ. And again, we encounter Christ not only in this room, we, we encounter Christ in people and places all over but I do believe there's something unique about our encounter Christ, with Christ here as we respond in obedience. And we plan our worship services around this. As we are plunged into the ancient story week after week, whether we feel like it or not, that is what is critical about our gathering here. I may not sense or feel a desire to know God more today at all, but nonetheless, I come here, and I'm plunged into the story again. And I remind myself that this is what I'm a part of. This is who I am hoping to grow to be. And as we do this week after week, over the long haul, we are formed into the people of God. And we gather around this table for the same purpose, week after week, to meet with Jesus, to be reminded and as we are reminded, we also take our thoughts to the fact that we don't do this alone. This is not an individual exercise that we participate in for our spiritual health, but this is something that we join with our brothers and sisters in Christ in our common pursuit of Jesus Christ. What we do when we gather in this room as the church is not the only important thing in our spiritual lives, not even by a long shot, but it is undoubtedly important. It is critical to our spiritual health and in the pursuit of us becoming the people that we are intended to become. So my encouragement to you is don't forsake it. Don't forsake it. Make it a habit. Make it a routine, not for the sake of empty ritual, but understanding that the rituals and practices we engage in are doing something in us. 
Amen. Would you stand this morning as we transition into a time to doing what we've been talking about all day, partaking in this meal. And Tim and Beth, if you'd like to join me as we prepare to serve the elements. I want to, by way of invitation to the table today, I want to read the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23. This is what Paul writes. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, Lord Jesus, we look back on your death, We remember, but we also look forward to your return. We receive in this meal a foretaste of the eternal nourishment that we will receive in you. Open our eyes and our minds that by faith we might commune with you this morning. In your name we pray this. Amen. Would you join us at the table this morning?